but most of our cases are actual are actually violations of just basic medical health standards that apply to every medical provider and so that's like patient privacy so we've had so many cases of hipaa violations another one we see um, is negligence in aftercare so uh, if a woman has had an abortion at a provider and is experiencing some kind of complications or has questions, they're refusing to do follow-up appointments to ensure that the abortion was complete. Dear Jane, the Life-Giving Podcast. Despite the best efforts of abortionists, there are still some rules and regulations providers must follow when administering an abortion. But who enforces those rules? Welcome to Dear Jane. I'm your host, Scott Baker. Enter ReProtection, a group that holds abortion clinics accountable. They've been responsible for going after dozens of abortion providers across the country for violations ranging from safety to privacy. Missy Martinez-Stone is the CEO of ReProtection and joins us here today. Missy, what is ReProtection and why is it necessary? So ReProtection was founded almost five years ago now to fill a really crucial gap that was discovered in the pro-life movement. And that was uh, pro-life legislation was being passed. Medical regulations, general medical regulations were being passed by states, by state agencies. But there was no follow through as far as when it came to enforcement. And so in states like Indiana and Kentucky that had really robust medical regulations, specifically abortion facility regulations on the books, they had these robust laws on the books. When you looked at what that looked like on the ground level, they were uh, they, there was no oversight. And it created this really, these really dangerous situations for women uh, seeking abortions because they would go into these unregulated facilities and be treated by unlicensed people and have, you know, really traumatic and terrible experiences. So we were started to um, be the enforcement arm of the pro-life movement, to be the ones to come in and say, how are these abortion facilities operating? Are they, you know, following the rules? basic medical regulations. And if they're not, how do we hold them accountable? So we come alongside pro-life communities and we help them investigate uh, their local abortion businesses and hold them accountable for dangerous abortion practices. So this isn't just in deep blue pro-choice states. I mean, you mentioned Indiana, Kentucky that are generally considered pro-life states. These Mm -hmm. are, um, this can happen anywhere, basically where this is, where this is going on. Yeah, absolutely. Especially post, you know, the reversal of Roe versus Wade, it changed the it changed the the landscape a little bit. But for the most part, even in states where they made abortion essentially illegal, like Kentucky, where I am, I was still asking questions of, okay, how are we enforcing that rule? What does this rule look like uh, when it comes to the ground level? You know, are there abortionists that are going to try? and operate illegally? Are there going to be people who exploit the loopholes? Um, And then you have states that were able to pass more uh, restrictions. So they, you know, United States starting to pass 15 weeks, six weeks limitations. Um, And so then we're looking at how is that being enforced? You know, are the abortion facilities actually in compliance? 
And then even in the states that are that are abortion sanctuaries, these places are just rife with abuse um, and medical negligence. And so uh, we can investigate them too. So it's it's changed a little bit as far as each state requires its own strategy and its own um, research, but we are working everywhere despite uh you know if a state's considered more conservative or um you know pro abortion what are some common laws or regulations that you uh see that are that are frequently ignored what's interesting is what you would assume is that or what a lot of people i talk to assume that the abortion facilities are only breaking the abortion specific rules you know like they don't want to do mandatory ultrasounds or they don't want to do informed consent but most of our cases are actual are actually violations of just basic medical health standards that apply to every medical provider and so that's like patient privacy like regardless of what kind of services you provide as a physician you cannot share private patient information with people who are not authorized to see it um and so we've had so many cases of HIPAA violations, of uh, physicians showing medical records to people who, who can't see it, the improper disposal of medical records. Um, so that has been a huge red flag that's come across a lot, or even putting women into a room in groups um, and distributing abortion pills to them all at the same time. I mean, that's a huge HIPAA violation. Um, and so that's when we see really commonly Another one we see um, is negligence and aftercare. So uh, if a woman has had an abortion at a provider and is experiencing some kind of complications or has questions, they're refusing to do follow-up appointments to ensure that the abortion was complete. Uh, when women are calling and saying they're having complications, they're being told, basically, we're done with you. Um, go find help somewhere else. Go to the ER. Um, go to a different medical provider and these women are, are scared and they're bleeding and these physicians don't care. They said, you're in, you're out, we're done with you. Um, and so we've had a lot of complaints about medical negligence as far as, um, you know, complications, questions, actually being there for the women after the surgery, after they got their money, hmm. they were done with them and sent them on their way. Um, and the other one we hear a lot too is um, inaccurate mis uh, ultrasound readings. And that's really important because especially in a lot of these states that now have um, gestational limits or they have heartbeat, you know, cardiac activity restrictions, how you do an ultrasound, how you read an ultrasound will, will dictate whether or not you can, you know, perform an abortion in that state. And so what they do is they change the image around a little bit or they just don't look hard enough. Um, they do ultrasounds that are in, in it, uh, insufficient and um, will miscalculate how far a woman actually is along or say she doesn't have a heartbeat when there really is one. So I would say those are probably the top three that we are consistently getting um, reports of uh, across the country. Let's go to the inaccurate ultrasounds. Um, how did you hear that that is going on? How does that get to you? And then what can you do about it? Yeah, so we we predominantly work with the local pro-life advocates in, in their communities. And so this is the pregnancy care centers. This is the sidewalk advocates. 
um, you know, the people that are on the ground that are working with the clients who have either gone into the abortion facility and changed their mind or have had an abortion experience and are now reaching out for help. And they will tell, you know, we've had multiple cases where the woman will go in and have an ultrasound at the abortion facility, will come back out and then go next door or, you know, go to the pregnancy center and have another ultrasound and the readings are completely different. Um, and so we actually had a physician at one of the, the medical director at one of the pregnancy centers, write a, you know, with our help, write a complaint to a medical board saying, I am consistently seeing patients at the pregnancy center, you know, within a very reasonable amount of time that they've had these ultrasounds and I'm reading a completely different, um, I'm reading completely different results. And so typically it's the pregnancy centers that are doing ultrasounds. Um, and so they will either see cardiac activity before the women go in or they'll see the woman after their abortion consultation. Um, and they'll have just completely different readings than what the woman was told in the abortion facility. And so they report that to us. Again, we have to be very mindful of things like HIPAA. And so they, they don't give us any patient identifying information, but they tell us like, this is something we're consistently seeing. And then we'll help them write a complaint to the local medical board or, or to whoever the governing agency is um, to ensure that there's a proper investigation of, of what's being done at these facilities. So this will, I mean, this is what I want to ask, but I know it'll sound naive or, or I don't, I don't know, Pollyanna or whatever. But when you talk about some of these violations and just basic medical standards, I mean, even things that, you know, you would expect from any basic doctor's office. Um, why, why, why do they, I mean, I understand it's kind of a stupid question because we know that they don't <laughs> care, but to, to what benefit, or, I mean, is it just so they can get as much churn as possible? Or I'm just trying to figure out the, the why is it so bad? It costs money to be in compliance mm. is really what it comes down to, to have the proper staff in place. You have to have people with certifications and licenses and you have to pay them more um it, you know it costs money to get those licenses and certifications to have the correct equipment to have the correct you know sterilization equipment that it all just it costs money and so a lot of the stories that we've heard especially from you know former abortion workers was it's just the bottom line we're running a business and any way we could cut corners and save money we're going to do that. It's get these women in and out, especially when you're putting 10 women in a room and you're distributing the pill all at the same time. That's just so you can see as many patients as possible, get them in and out, you know, charge, charge them all from individual appointment. And you just made 10 times what you'd make seeing them one at a time. And so a lot of what we're seeing, um, it is driven on uh, profit on not wanting to pay or the correct equipment, the correct staff, um, or the extra time that it takes to be in compliance. And then on, on a more, a little bit more of a, you know, just a, a observation on my end, um, most of the physicians that we are investigating typically have a history of medical negligence. They've had medical malpractice lawsuits before. Like the people that are running these facilities are not the ones that graduated the top of their class in medical school. 
um, it attracts a very interesting demographic of physicians. And um, because a lot of times this is probably the only place they can practice because of the lack of oversight. Wow. Um, and so so much sense that I'd never thought of that. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, So anybody, if, if the, the physicians that we were, so our first closure was in Florida, the gentleman was an 87 year old physician that was showing allegedly showing signs of mental and physical impairment. I mean, his hands were shaking and it was hard to understand. Um, and he was doing surgery and, and if that, physician worked at a hospital they would have retired him you know or if he was affiliated with some kind of medical group they would have said you are showing signs of impairment you cannot you know but because he was an abortionist the the health department was was very slow uh to get involved and to shut him down and so um that's kind of again that's that's anecdotal that's just my best guess but from my experience um a lot of these a lot of these practitioners probably couldn't get a job anywhere else you know it's i'd never really thought about that but it's true i mean not everybody in medical school made straight a's right and so um you know there there were c students just like i was but and so they have to land somewhere um that yeah. makes a lot of sense, man. That is that is scary, and and that can result in mistreatment of clients, can it? Absolutely, because you know these these practitioners. I mean, not only are like in this case, this guy was showing signs of of visible impairment, um, and he's holding. He the the story from the client was that even when he was trying to administer the anesthesia, he couldn't hold the needle still enough. Oh, you know, and had to poker multiple times, you know, so it's like that is going to lead to complications. Um, you know, that's going to lead to lacerations like that, that your, your, your risk of complications goes sky high when you're dealing with a physician that is physically or, or mentally impaired. And so and that's why there's laws against it. That's why there's an entire medical code that says you cannot be impaired um, while treating these uh these your patients but yeah i mean it it shows up in the way that they treat their patients and the way that um they don't properly inform them uh they're in they're out they don't follow up with complications they're not monitoring their vitals i mean it's just it's just uh there's a a lack of a, a standard of care Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more with Missy about the reasons why so many abortion rules are not enforced. We'll do that in part two of our conversation with Missy Martinez Stone from Reprotection here on Dear Jane. Dear Jane, the life-giving podcast. Are you ready to have your perspective challenged? Introducing Dear Jane, the pro-life podcast that breaks boundaries and brings people together for groundbreaking conversations about the sanctity of life. We're not afraid to tackle the tough stuff, to confront the controversial, and to explore the gray areas that often divide us. Dear Jane hosts the conversations you didn't know you needed to hear. Whether you're pro-life, pro-choice, or somewhere in between, this podcast is your invitation to step outside your comfort zone and join a movement of understanding, empathy, and transformation. 
On this edition of People You Should Know, we introduce you to Carrie Murray Nellis, founder and executive director of Abiding Love Adoption Agency. Licensed in Georgia, Florida, and South Carolina, Abiding Love works with a focus on the birth mother in the adoption process. We are all about the mom. No offense to adoptive parents. Um, you know, there are great adoptive parents. We love adoptive parents. But agencies, for the most part, cater to the adoptive parents because they're the ones with the money, right? And what I kept seeing is nobody was caring about the woman in the corner crying. Formerly an adoption attorney, Carrie says she started Abiding Love after seeing that the adoption system was broken. A lot of coercion happens in adoption because the the these adoption agencies have all these people waiting on a waiting list, right? And they're like, where's my baby? Where's my baby? And so, you know, what we try to do is to, to cut that out because our mission is not to find people babies. Our mission is not to match people. Our mission is to empower her. Carrie says the goal is making sure the birth mom has all the information and resources she needs to make the best choice for her and her baby. When we have a woman that we have worked with and we have counseled, we we connect her with a birth mother mentor. We try to match up based on, you know, they will connect and um, just their stories and everything. But um, in counseling, um, we want her to walk into this with her eyes wide open, whether it's parenting or making an adoption plan. Abiding Love provides information about potential families to the birth mom. Home study ready families will say, I want to present to her. They will send me the profiles. We'll show those to mom. She chooses the family and then they come under the umbrella of abiding love. To learn more about abiding love and their mom first approach, visit abidingloveadopt.com. Looking for a marketing agency that truly understands your pro-life mission? Choose Life Marketing is here for you. With our specialized services in web design, digital marketing, fundraising, and branding, we empower organizations like yours to affect life-saving change in your community. Together, we create a culture that values and protects life, one marketing message at a time. Join us in building a stronger community, one life at a time. Choose Life Marketing, where your mission matters. Dear Jane, the Life-Giving Podcast. And we're back here on Dear Jane with Missy Martinez-Stone from Reprotection. We've been talking about the lack of enforcement of basic privacy and healthcare laws at many abortion providers. Missy and her group go after these facilities with the help of local pro-life allies. Missy, when there's a lack of enforcement, where do you typically find that? You've mentioned local health boards. Is it them or city councils, state law enforcement? Where is the failure to enforce these important regulations? Yeah, so we what we have found is we work predominantly on the state level. Um, sometimes we will get into city, city council, town, you know, county. But predominantly, it's with health departments and medical boards, the people that are primarily responsible for oversight of physicians and healthcare facilities at the state level. So every state has their own version of a medical board or a health department that licenses people and licenses buildings to, you know, meet meet the standard, meet meet the meet the need in their community. And so what we found was that gap was for the health department, it was okay to operate a medical facility or an abortion facility. The building itself, the the practice itself has to meet 
these standards. And that's, you know, sterile equipment, licensed staff distributing controlled substances, patient privacy, you know, that all falls under the health department. And a lot of these health departments were very, very slow um, to document, to inspect, you know, cite and correct, you know, issues that they were seeing and that were being reported to them. And then for the medical boards, it was the physicians themselves. It was the doctors who were treating the patients poorly, were, you know, um, uh, had multiple cases of medical negligence, um, you know, breaking laws left and right. You know, we would take, those would be taken to the medical board and the medical board would basically be like, this is not our responsibility. And we would have to say, yes, it is. Mm. <laughs> so mm. those were the primary primary enforcement agencies that, um, you know, we, a lot of communities were having issues with getting them to step up and do their jobs. But we have worked with like zoning boards um, in upstate New York. We had a zoning issue, you know, so it really depends on whatever we discover in our research and data collection part of our investigation it really informs the agencies we work with but the get big gap of enforcement nationally that people were seeing were from the health departments and the medical boards and in most cases correct me if i'm wrong but the a lot of cases these health departments and these medical boards and things like that they're, they're these are unelected people right so who are they accountable to really ultimately yeah it, again it changes from state to state but predominantly a health a health department is under the governor's office uh medical boards can either be under the attorney general's office or the governor's office again it changes from state to state um and so they're typically accountable to the executive uh branch but they're also accountable to the legislative branch because they're enforcing the laws that the legislators passed and that the governor's signed into law. And so we've had multiple cases where we've gone to legislators and said, hey, you remember that law you worked really hard to pass? Well, here is the state agency not enforcing it. And let me tell you, the, the legislators do not take kindly to that. Um, and so they have stepped in and helped us, you know, put pressure on these agencies to do their jobs. But we've also worked directly with multiple governor's agencies and said, hey, you know, that department that you, that's under your jurisdiction. Yeah, they're not doing their jobs. Um, and we've quick we've gotten results quickly that way. <laughs> One of the things we're starting to see in states like I know Minnesota, I want to say Colorado and some others, is they're moving away from requiring uh, the procedure to be done in uh, medical facilities or by licensed physicians, that sort of thing. How would that then a ch change the approach you've described for us. Yeah, so what we're running into in places like California, Illinois, New York, Colorado that have completely deregulated abortion, they regulate everything else. And so we are looking at, uh, I, I mean, in those situations, like Governor Newsom was um on record saying, come to California, you know, for your abortion, they do not inspect abortion facilities in California. And so he just invited a bunch of people to come to facilities that are not inspected and that have no oversight. And that to me is a perfect recipe for uh, 
abuse. That is a perfect recipe for people to take abuse victims, for people to take victims of human trafficking um, to these, these facilities with no oversight and cover up their abuse. And we have had multiple reports of suspicions of things like human trafficking at in states like this. And so our focus really in those states is, is looking at what will they care about? If they're not going to care about abortion, what do we know is going on inside these facilities that they cannot ignore? And so we are talking to police departments about human trafficking in their areas. Um, we're talking to uh, Child Protective Services about, you know, the handling of minors, things like that. Um, because we know in these cases, in these situations that these facilities, again, are not on the up and up. And so we 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 know that the bad actors out there are going to take advantage of the lack of oversight. And that is honestly, it's scary. It is really scary um, because they're just setting it up for people to take victims into these situations. Yeah. And, and I, I want to pursue that a little bit because I would think. um either in areas where there are strong laws and they're not enforced or in areas like California where there are no, you know, like you said, very almost no oversight whatsoever. I would think that you would see a lot of providers who would just clearly say, you know, we don't care about any kind of restrictions. I mean, they would flaunt their, uh, their lack of compliance. Let's, let's put it that way. You probably see that a lot, don't you? No, absolutely. And, and that's where we really see, the, hypo- the hip- hypocrisy of the abortion industry is they're touting themselves as women's health care, empowering women, but really they turn around and they go, we don't need to follow your rules. We don't need to provide safe environments for women. We don't need to sterilize our equipment. And I'm like, who is paying the price for those decisions? It's the women that you are claiming to serve. And that is the thing that just gets under my skin <laughs> about this whole thing is the abortion industry, they're master marketers and they have touted themselves as, as the ones that really care about women. And yet they allow these unregulated facilities to uh, operate in a substandard ways. And the people that pay the price are the women that they're supposed to be helping um, because they're not they're not getting in trouble for not being in compliance. But that woman that just ended up in the ER with an infection because they didn't do their jobs correctly and has to have a full hysterectomy, she's paying that price. Um, And it is just absolutely infuriating that they think that that is acceptable. Yeah, that's one of the most ridiculous arguments I hear now. You know, everybody, they like to say it's, uh, well, it's it's healthcare, but don't make us do it in a licensed medical facility. And don't require it to be done by licensed physicians. Yeah, you but know, it's the, not the, healthcare. Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's the most ridiculous yeah. thing. So so why do you do what you do? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, I've been doing pro life work for over a decade, and at first I was more involved in like the activism bit. I was at Student Life of America on the national team for years, and then I was tapped on the shoulder to with this about this idea of enforcement and starting an organization to be like the watchdog group and help get this idea off the ground. 
And I loved it so much for a number of reasons. But one was I, it, there was a measurable impact. When we closed down the facility, permanently shut down a facility, which we've done twice, and we're about to have our third next month. Um, that is a measurable impact that we can see that women and children will be saved in this community because these abortion facilities are closed or, or this practitioner has lost their license. And I also love that um, I have friends that are not, would not consider themselves, you know, fully for life um, that do support abortion. But they like what I do because they say, well, regardless of where you stand on abortion, you should not be okay with dirty facilities you know, hurting women, 87 year olds doing with shaking hands, performing surgery. Like it's something that I feel like more people can get behind um, because it, it, it really appeals to that just basic human decency. Um, and so I like that it builds bridges a lot with, with people that might not necessarily consider themselves, you know, fully hundred percent pro-life in, in all cases. And so um, I, I like that piece of it. And I also like that it is woman and child focused. Like we really are advocating for the safety of the woman and her child. And I like that holistic approach. And um, it has been, it's hard. There are days where, I mean, the stories that we get are grotesque. Um, they are really difficult to hear and to read. Um, and the people that we deal with are, are callous. Um, and sometimes it feels like I'm banging my head against the wall. And these cases take the one, our closure that's coming next month. This is the case I've been on for three years. Mm. I mean, it's a long process, but you know, when we, when we get that news of that victory of that closure, or, you know, we hear of a woman, you know, being, feeling advocated for feeling like her voice is being heard again. I mean, it just, it just makes it worth it. You know, I, I really want to make communities safer for women and advocate for their experience with medical providers. And so I really enjoy it. Um, it's been hard, and, you know, being a, we, we incorporated in January of 2020 before the world shut down. <laughs> um, and so it's been an uphill battle getting this off the ground, but every time we go to a conference and we talk to pro-life people, um, especially the pregnancy centers and the sidewalk advocates, all we hear is, oh my gosh, we've needed this so badly. Oh my gosh, we we have needed somewhere to take this information. We've needed someone like you for so long. I mean, that's just something we hear all the time. And um, it makes me really happy to know that we're meeting such a specific need for the pro-life movement and, and we're doing something that no one else, you know, is doing. One of the last questions we like to ask, of course, the name of this podcast is Dear Jane, um, after Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade. Mm. As you think of the Janes of 2023, the ones that you advocate for, um, if they were to come across, if she was to come across this podcast, what would you say to the Jane of the 21st century? Yeah, I would, I would say that you have a voice and that you are entitled to um, good care, good medical care. And that if you find yourself in a situation where you don't feel properly informed, you don't know what's going on, you don't feel seen or heard, um, you express concerns and you don't feel listened to, 
you have questions or complications afterwards and you are um, pushed off, um, you have a voice. You can hold those people accountable to the medical boards and to the health department. And I know a lot of people think that their only recourse after a bad medical experience is the lawsuit. And that's just not the case. Lawsuits are hard and messy and expensive, but you can help write a, a complaint to your medical board, your local medical board, and tell your story um, and get get your voice back. Um, it was not okay, whatever happened to you. You know, if you felt like your care was inadequate or you were taken advantage of or lied to, that was not okay. Absolutely not okay. You didn't deserve that. Um, and And you can hold... Uh, the facility accountable and you can hold the doctor and the the nurses and everybody accountable that was complicit in your traumatic experience. The website is reprotection.org. If you would like to learn more about what they do, what they can do, if you'd like to help, if you think this is somewhere that you might be able to contribute uh, some assistance, make sure you check out reprotection.org. Missy Martinez Stone, thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you so much. Dear Jane, the life-giving podcast. My thanks to Missy Martinez-Stone from Reprotection for joining us here today on Dear Jane. I think if they were intellectually honest, which I won't hold my breath, but even abortionists would have to say that the facilities that carry out this procedure need to meet some basic standards. They need to make sure they're complying with local rules and laws and regulations. And unfortunately, there aren't enough law enforcement officials holding them to account. So it's good to have an organization like Reprotection around to at least help in that effort. And if you'd like to learn more, again, their website is reprotection.org. Thanks for listening to Dear Jane. I'm Scott Baker. Our producer is Kate Yule, and our editor is Jacob McCormick. If you'd like to visit us online, you can visit DearJane.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Dear Jane Podcast. We are a production of the Choose Life Coalition. Talk to you next time.